0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We have officially finished Matthew chapter 5 and are starting on Matthew 6 in the midst of this series on the Sermon on the Mount that we're doing called Summer on the Mount. If we don't get going pretty quickly, we're going to have to call it Fall on the Mount and Winter on the Mount, right? We're walking through it. Our intention is over the next few weeks, we're going to finish up the entire sermon. And today we're going to focus on the first part of chapter 6. Let me ask you a question before we get started. And this is a, not a rhetorical question. This is a question that requires audience participation. So you tell me, who is your favorite actor or actress? All right. Who's your favorite actor or actress? Tom Hanks. Hey, we've had. Listen, we did this last night and today. And both times the first person mentioned was Tom Hanks. All right. Somebody else. We heard three or four there. Who else? Meryl Streep, all right, we got that. Anybody else? Last, Matthew McConaughey, all right, here we go. Last night we had Tom Selleck. I don't think that was for his, his great acting chops. I think that was mustache. I gave Diane a hard time last night because hers is Russell Crowe, and ask asked her, why is it Russell Crowe? And she said he's a good actor and he's not bad on the eyes, right? So what makes a great actor or actress? What makes what makes someone say, you know what, that person is a great actor. So take Tom Hanks, for example. Tom Hanks was mentioned last night and today. What makes Tom Hanks a great actor or actress? Uh, he's not an actress. Well, bosom buddies maybe, but he was, what makes him a great actor? He transforms into his role, right? And so you believe him. And so when you think about Tom Hanks, you know, some actors you think, well, that I remember them for that specific role. We think of Tom Hanks, he's played so many different roles, and each one you feel like he becomes that character. That he does a great job of portraying that. I was looking up just some interesting facts about the history of acting. I know that's what you all do every week. Um, but I was looking up this week, and I don't know if you know this, but most people trace the origins of acting and even theater to ancient Greece. And they say the first actor was a guy named Thespis, like Thespian, who stepped on stage and spoke and acted out someone as something else in ancient Greece. Now here's what's interesting. They had a word for the person that would put on a mask and act out these performances. In fact, what would often happen, it would be a one-man show, that he would orate, he would start it, and then, he would put on a mask for one character, take that mask off, put on another mask, and play a different character. So you know the ancient Greek word for the actor. Here, I've got it for you. I'll show it to you real quick. Here is that word. That makes a lot of sense to you, doesn't it, right? It's Dubocrates. Now, here's the thing. If you just take, and what we call transliterate, which just means write the English equivalent letter, For what is there, this is what you get. Hypocrites. The Greek word for an actor was a hypocrite. Because it was someone acting under. That's what it literally means. A mask. Portraying something they were not. Now the reason this word is important is because in Matthew chapter 6, in the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus uses... That Greek word I just showed you a minute ago is used three times in this passage. In fact, some people think that the modern understanding of the word hypocrite as someone who is not what they say they are. Right. When you say hypocrite today, the first thing you don't think is awesome actor. Right, You think someone that's not doing what they say they are. They're not acting out what they believe. Most people trace the transformation of that word from something of an actor, esteemed actor even, to someone who is not what they say to the teaching we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 6. In those verses, three times Jesus talks about genuine, authentic devotion versus hypocritical devotion. And in the sermon so far, he has talked about the essential elements of Christian character and the influence of his followers and the world around us, talking about salt and light, the righteousness of his followers and how we relate to others. And then he's going to turn in chapter six and talk about how we relate to God. Now, here's what's interesting about that to me, is that it's almost the inversion of the Ten Commandments. If you remember in the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, right, are all about your relationship with whom? God. And then the last six are about your relationship with other people. Well, what he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he flips that. And so he talks about do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not, you know, that you've heard about divorce and you've heard about name calling. You've heard about walking the extra mile. Like He does all of that. But then he comes in the first part of chapter six and says now about those things that you do to draw closer to God. And so these verses are all about how we relate to the Lord. And as he teaches through this, he's going to talk about devotion to the Lord that is contrasted from the hypocrites and authentic people of faith. By the way, before we delve into this, just so you know, Jesus had some of his harshest critiques in the entire New Testament pointed at people who he called hypocrites. People that were out and out sinners, people that were, were not like shy about their sinning, he did not treat as harshly as he did those who claimed to be one thing and were actually another. I mean, you think about what they said about him, right? That he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. That's what they leveled against him. When the woman caught in adultery, remember that story? She's brought before Jesus. She's laid at his feet. They called her. They said, what do you want to do with her? Jesus treats her gently. Now, he doesn't forgive her. He does forgive her sin, but he doesn't say keep sinning. He says, don't sin anymore. But in that moment, he is tender with her. And yet with the Pharisees, who he often called hypocrites, he calls them brood of vipers. And tells them they are whitewashed tombs. And there's a whole section in Matthew where he gives woe to the Pharisees. W-O-E. Judgment on the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 that we've talked about every week since. He says, unless your righteousness is better than them, then you won't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And there is no doubt that while he's speaking the Sermon on the Mount, there are Pharisees and scribes that are listening to him. And they would have got their attention peaked when he said, your righteousness has got to be better than them because they thought they had it figured out. And so he's going to speak indirectly to them. In fact, it's not really a, 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 it's not really an ancient subtweet where he calls them out without using their actual names, but it is sort of like that because when he says hypocrites, he's talking about their religious leaders. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the entire passage of chapter chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, skipping some part in the middle that we're going to come back to next week. And then we're going to talk about three things that we see about authentic devotion as opposed to hypocrisy. Starting in chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. Be careful or take notice or watch not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. And then he gives three examples about what he means by this. And all of them are important things in drawing closer to the Lord and are commands given in the Old Testament for how we live our lives. Verse 2. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles Since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words, don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you even ask. Now, next week, we're going to talk in detail about the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to just kind of jump verses 9 through 15 for a moment and go to verse 16. And whenever you fast... Don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that fasting is obvious as people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others. But to your Father, who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, here's the thing. These obviously follow a pattern. There is a general statement at the beginning and then three examples. And each example is, don't do this. But do this, and your Father who sees all will reward you. And so when we think about the difference between authentic faith and hypocritical faith, there are three things that come to mind out of this passage for me. And the first thing is, and perhaps the most important thing that he's driving is, that authentic devotion is not a public performance. Authentic devotion to the Lord is, is not a public performance. Now he says this right there in verse one: Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now, first of all, let me just ask a question. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about being salt and light? Do you remember that? Some of you? Maybe? yeah, some of you are like I didn't hear that one. Okay, you know the general idea, right? In that passage he says, "And let your light shine before men. do you remember that? So what's he talking about there? He's talking about your good works. He's talking about your righteousness. He's saying, be salt in the community, be light in the community. So let your light shine before men. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. So here's a question. Is Jesus contradicting himself in chapter 6, verse 1, verse chapter 5? We're in a church. The answer is no. All right. Okay. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean just because we're in a church. It's no. Here's what's happening. It shows off the point he's making about public performance. The difference in the two of them is in the motivation of doing them. So here it is be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. When you go back to chapter 5, what does it say? Let your lights shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your father in heaven. There's a difference there in motivation. Amen. There's a difference in understanding why we're doing our acts. And he says, be careful that you don't start doing your acts of righteousness for people to see. For others to notice. For others to look around and go, man, I, I, man, they're doing an awesome job. Have you seen how they give? Have you heard how they pray? Have you seen how much they fast? Man. They're awesome. In fact, he gives those examples here and he says, don't be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees who would let everybody know that they were in the process of giving or even might let people know how much they're giving. Now, I don't know that they were actually walking into the temple with a trumpeteer behind them. And I've never seen that in my years of ministry. Have you ever seen somebody walk down the aisle to give and play a trumpet while they're doing it? If you have, I'd like to have a conversation with you, but it was interesting, right? Like, we don't do that, but his point here is don't make a show out of it. Don't let people know. Don't go, look. can you believe? I mean, I I am so, I was so moved that I gave a large donation to help out this particular organization. Now, if you're doing that because you want to give to the organization, that's fine. But if you're doing it because you want people to know that you gave to the organization, that's different. It's not a public performance. He says in prayer. He says don't be the ones that go and stand on the corner. There was a certain time of day when they would ring the bells. And that was a time when they were supposed to all kind of gather together. And he says that there were those people as they've interpreted this and looked at this. There were those Pharisees, those religious leaders that would stand in the most important spots. And they would get there early. Okay. They would get there early so that when the bell rang they would be standing in the most prominent spot. And then they would begin to give these eloquent prayers. So don't be the ones that are out there trying to impress everybody with what you're doing. Then he says to them, basically, you know, <laughs> you're not going to impress God. That's not, that's that's not the goal here, or that's not the result of you praying for others to hear. And you're not going to inform God about what's going on in your life. He knows. Then he says, and when you fast, don't let everybody know you're fasting. Don't walk around. And, What's wrong? Well, I'm just fasting for the Lord. It's all been a hard, it's been a hard week, suffering for Jesus. Maybe it's not fasting because I know we don't talk about fasting a lot. We don't do that as much as the Bible would intend for us to. But maybe it's just in service to the Lord. Like, what are you? What, what, what's what's going on? Man, I'm just tired. I've been I've been doing so much for the church this week. I'm just so tired. Been trying to, I've been trying to talk to my neighbors about Jesus. And it's just wearing me out. Authentic devotion is not public performance. It's not intended for people. It's not for people. It's not a show. Sam Storms, who is a pastor in Oklahoma, says, There is no more astonishing proof of human perversity than our skill at transforming spiritual holiness into self-righteous hypocrisy. And so Jesus knew that we would have an uncanny knack of turning submission to the will of God into opportunity for showmanship before people. And he knew our ability to trade our love of godliness and holiness for a reputation of godliness and holiness. So, why do you do the religious things you do? What's the purpose? Is it to feel better about yourself? Man, I'm glad I went to church because I feel better about going to church. Is it about building a reputation? Is it about an approval campaign for others to look at you and see you and think, man, they're really a good person? Is it about influence, power? Sometimes people give to organizations or even to churches so that they can have a say in what the decisions are. Is it about personal reward? You think, man, if I do this, then I'm going to be rewarded. Is it about feeling making others around you feel guilty? Or is it about earning brownie points with your significant other? If I don't go to church, then I won't get to do this. What's your motivation? What's the reason you pray? What's the reason you give? What's the reason you come to church? What's the reason that you study the Bible? What's the reason behind it? If the motivation behind any of those activities is public performance for others to see or to make yourself bigger, then it is misplaced motivation. And he uses it in all three examples, and in all three he says those people are acting, hypocrites, people that aren't really what they say they are. And here's the problem with hypocritical behavior, which let's just get on the table. If we all look back on our lives, we all have hypocritical behavior. We all have things that we we believe, and sometimes we firmly believe them, and then as we live out our lives, we are not as good as living out what we believe. Sometimes we condemn the things in others that we know are problems in our own lives. I talk about this with my kids, you know. That one of the things that I learned very quickly in parenting and have learned over these almost 18 years, 17 and a half years I've been parenting, is this. That the things that I don't like about myself drive me absolutely nuts in my kids. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Like things that I'm like, man, I I wish I didn't have that trait. And I'll look at my kids sometimes and I'm like, man, why couldn't you have gotten something from your mother on that part? Right? Right? We're easy. It's easy for us to overlook our own deficiencies. Or to just say what we believe, it's easier to say it than to live it. Let me also say that what Jesus is not talking about here is the person that falls into sin or has a problem for the moment or makes a mistake. He is not talking about all of us are still going to be people that sin. We are in the process of being transformed into that to which Christ has called us. We are in the process of being transformed. So we are not complete yet. You are not there yet. You are not yet what you will be in Christ if you are a follower of Jesus. But he's in that process of making you into that. And as we move towards that, we ought to move further away from who we were. We should move further away from sin. But it's not always an easy, noticeable path upwards. And so Jesus is not talking about those moments in our lives when a familiar sin comes back in and we give in for the moment or we feel ambushed and we do not react like we should react. But he's talking about a consistent life of living it out in one way in public and another way in private. And So authentic devotion is not a public performance. Secondly, authentic devotion is performed for an audience of one. Notice all three sound very familiar at the end. It says, and then your Father who what? Sees in secret will see you, will notice, will be aware. And as a result, you will be rewarded. We'll talk about that in a moment. So our living out our devotion should be about our devotion to the Lord. So what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that mean that we ought to be devoted to one, that we live for an audience of one? That sounds good. That sounds real churchy, right? Hey, just live for an audience of one. Don't worry about everybody else. Just live for the Lord. But what does that mean? Well, there are a few things it means. First of all, it means these three things that he's talking about and other things too. But these three things in particular, giving and praying and fasting. First of all, it means is that we do those things. He is in no way saying here, don't do that. Never do that. In fact, he says an important word that in the Greek is translated properly here doesn't mean if or by chance if you do. He says when you give, when you pray, when you fast. The first step for us in authentic devotion is to do the things that will draw us closer to the Lord on a regular basis, even systematic basis. Jesus assumes we will pray. Jesus assumes we will give. Jesus assumes we will fast. And sometimes I feel like American Christianity has gotten really good about talking about what we should do. And we're not as good about doing what we should do. We like to have conversations. So, for instance, in in the convention that we are a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention, yet again in the last year, the number of people baptized in our convention fell. As the numerical growth of our country is growing and the world is growing, the number of people that are being saved through the ministry of Southern Baptist churches is declining. And there have been symposiums and conferences and Zoom calls about what is the problem with evangelism in the Southern Baptist Convention. Here's the problem. We're not doing it. We're not praying, we're not evangelizing, we're not going, we're not seeking the Lord, we're not doing the things God's called us to do. I feel sometimes we're like Moses in Exodus when he is on the the edge of of crossing the sea and the army has now come from behind and he looks around and they're trapped and he's like, we don't have any way out. And he starts to pray to the Lord, Lord, and he starts to speak to the people, you're about to see the Lord do it, and he's talking and talking. And God looks at him and says, quit talking, get moving. He says literally to him, Why are you talking to me? I've told you what to do. Go. So we do these things. But as we do them, we check the motivation of our heart. We look to the reason that we're doing it. We don't, we don't think about, well, what are other people going to think about this? Good or bad? We don't, we don't think about how will this impact my reputation? How will this impact my, my, um, My Instagram followers. Like we don't think about those kind of motivations. We just do what God has called us to do for the glory of God. And we don't make a big deal about it. The phrase used over and over here is in secret. That doesn't necessarily mean that we never pray in public. It doesn't mean that you don't ever give when everybody's here for church, that you find a different way to do it. That doesn't mean that you don't have public moments when devotion is acted out. What it means is that what you're doing in public is matched by what you're doing in private. And so if you're standing up to pray in a worship service or in a Sunday school class or with a group of friends, that that's not the only time you prayed that week. We do things without public consumption in the privacy of our hearts and our homes for the glory of God. And he talks about in prayer that we have a, uh, goes into our prayer closet or into our room and, and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a room specified in your house as your prayer closet and that's all that it is. If you have that, that's awesome. But it just means that you have a spot or you have a moment or you have a routine where you spend time regularly with the Lord by yourself. And then he tells us just to be simple. and Say what we mean in the midst of that. That authentic devotion doesn't try to come up with the most flowery words we can imagine. I grew up in a in rural West Tennessee, and for the first five years of my life, I went to a small country church called Southside Baptist Church. Great church, great foundation for me. But it was, a bunch, it was a group of people that were just common people. I loved them. Used car salesmen and farmers and factory workers. And when they got up to pray on Sunday morning, sometimes it sounded like an Oxford lecture had broken out. O thou mightiest Father of the utmost heaven, wherefore may I go into your presence? I was like, that is not what you, you sound like normally. God knows your educational level. He knows we're all from the South. He knows bread again and makes fun of me for my southern sayings. It's all right. And when I go to the Lord, I don't try to talk like somebody else. You just be who you are. You talk like you talk. Now, some of you may have to clean up if you talk some other way sometimes. But the Lord knows that too. But My favorite stories along those lines was when I was in Ripley, we had a, an evangelist come by the name of Ken Freeman. I don't know if any of you have ever know Ken Freeman or met Ken Freeman. But Ken Freeman had a uh, a cross shaved in the back of his head. And he was wild. And I loved it. We were... We were eating one day. He wanted to eat every day at the Ripley Chinese restaurant, which was probably the best restaurant we had in Ripley, but it was still a Ripley Chinese restaurant. All right, that's where we want to eat every day. So we go every day and we eat. We talk over that and have a conversation. And one day he said, uh, "We were talking about the, the night before. We had a couple of kind of people that were far from God come and ask questions about the Lord, which is what we wanted." And he said, can I tell you, he said, when I got saved, you would not believe how far I was away from the Lord. He's written a book about it. It's fascinating, the story he has. But he said, I remember the first youth group I went to after that. And he said, I didn't know anything. And I get in youth group, and they're saying, hey, who wants to pray? Who wants to close us to pray? And he said, I looked around, all these people have been in youth group for years, and none of them raised their hands. He said, I've been saved three days. I go, I'll do it. He said, after the prayer, the youth minister came and said, you use some words tonight we don't ever use in the church. He said, because I was just talking like I was. Here's what I say to you. God's more concerned in you being who you are than in you sounding exactly right. In fact, he compares it to, he talks about the pagans who think if they just say enough words in the right way, and the right mantra, and the right chants, if they say it the right way, then God will do something. What I think is fascinating about that, we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer next week. What I think is fascinating about that is he says right before the Lord's Prayer, he says, now don't go out there and just list off a bunch of words thinking that the words themselves will make a difference and don't make it a mantra, don't make it a chant. And he says that right before the prayer that has been used more than any other prayer in the history of the world for that exact purpose. But somehow if we can say the Lord's Prayer I love the Lord's Prayer we'll talk next week it's an in-depth thing. I have no idea how we're going to fit the entire Lord's Prayer into one week. But we're going to try. I love it. But it's not intended to be that thing that you say before you run out onto the football field. To give you extra protection without meaning what it actually says. It's authentic devotion is For the Lord, with a motivation for him, it's matching private and public. It's simple, and it is what you mean. I think about the biblical example, I think, when he talks about the pagans babbling, is Elijah on Mount Carmel, when he is there, and they have laid out the sacrifice, and he's having the contest with the prophets of Baal. And it says, the prophets of Baal went on for hours, screaming to their God, cutting themselves, looking for any way possible for their God to show up. And Elijah, when all that's done, gets them to wet down everything and then just says, Lord, send the fire, and it comes. Simple to the point from your heart. And here's the last thing we see from this passage, and then we're done. Authentic devotion will be rewarded. I'm just going to list a bunch of things here because what I want you to understand is it doesn't necessarily mean the way you think. Sometimes people use these phrases and they turn them into something of a prosperity gospel that if I give to the Lord, the Lord will give to me. If I pray to the Lord, the Lord will bless me. And what they mean by that is that God's going to do something for me here and now that I think is a blessing. So the most obvious ways are when you're watching TV and a a pastor on TV says, if you'll send me a $1,000, God will send you 10 That's not what Jesus intends here. The, the, the more subtle way that we do that is, if I do this, then God's got to protect me here. God's got to take care of me. God's got to give me this. You realize God doesn't have to do anything except be true to the character of who he is already. So what kind of reward will it come? Because every one of them says, your father who sees in secret will see and reward you. Your father who sees in secret will see and reward you. The father who sees in secret will see and reward you. What are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that you do get the approval of God, that God's approval, which is the approval that all of us should go for. That is part of it. There's the alleviation of suffering for your fellow human being, that when you give, when you pray and see God move, when you see things happen, that you get to be a part of seeing someone else's life made better. You get a spiritual breakthrough that sometimes it is God will break through. Revival in a church or in a community or in your household. Salvation for people that are outside of the faith because of the works that you are doing dedicated to the Lord. The kingdom of God advanced on this earth. The presence of God made more clear. And the eternal rewards that are coming for us when we get to the other side are stacking upon themselves. And we'll talk about that more in a few weeks because Jesus specifically talks about that. In the next part of this sermon. But the point is, it's okay to look for rewards, just look for the right ones. Not the applause of men, not the approval of men, but the approval of the Lord for doing what you're called to do. So here's my question for you as we finish today. Are you authentic? Or are you a hypocrite? I'm not going to come to each and every one of you and ask you that because that can be kind of a tough question. But I hope that you'll respond to the Lord in your heart with the answer. Are you authentic? Are you real? Is this devotion something that comes from within and is dedicated to the Lord and not for other people to see? Or is there? And there could be some mixing of those motivations. Or are you someone that is looking for approval from outside? Are you authentically, passionately devoted to the Lord? Let's pray together.